You're listening to the Nonprofit Problem Solver Podcast brought to you by KevKayak.com. Kev helps nonprofit leaders deliver more impact faster and easier so they can be mission accomplished in 40 hours a week or less. For more information, visit KevKayak.com. Now, here is the host of Nonprofit Problem Solver, Kev Kayak. Kev Kyatt here. Welcome to Nonprofit Problem Solver. Thanks for tuning in. We're here to help. You are actually the Nonprofit Problem Solver. Our job is to bring you practical, tactical expertise that you can use right now, or maybe in an hour. You're about to hear the recording of a live call with an expert panel, and you're more than welcome to join these live calls. Just zip on over to nonprofitproblemsolver.com to register. In episode six, we're looking closely at programs and services. We ask how programs are coping at the moment and what plans are emerging for either extended responses to COVID or renewed responses later in the year. We have a go at redefining success and failure, and we look at what nonprofits should do to stay relevant. And we take a question on the arts and culture space that leads to talk about mergers and consolidation, not just for museums, but across the sector. All that over the next hour. Welcome, everyone, to this week's edition of Nonprofit Problem Solver. We're talking about programs and services today, and I would like to introduce the expert panel beginning with Emily Taylor. Hi, everybody. My name is Emily Taylor. I'm the principal of Teeny Big. Uh, I specialize in taking uh, lukewarm followers into passionate supporters of of, uh, nonprofit organizations. Um, My focus is really on human-centered design um, and audience engagement. Thanks, Emily. And next is Lisa Peterson. Hi, my name's Lisa Peterson. I'm based here in Cleveland, Ohio, and my background is in data management and monitoring for humanitarian work. Thanks. And Asandi Connor. Good afternoon. My name is Asandi Connor, and I am the director of the Detroit Revitalization Fellows Program, a program that is... um, housed in Wayne State University's Office of Economic Development. I also am the CEO and founder of Say It Right Detroit, a strategic communications consulting firm. Welcome. And we may be joined by Carlos Gonzalez, who was on the panel last time we were speaking about programs and services, but has not yet joined us. Uh, So we will start with our uh, first question. The way this works is uh, the panel and myself will go through a series of questions pressing at the moment around programs and services. Uh, Everyone listening in is invited, encouraged to participate in the chat, uh, put questions to the panel. I'll be monitoring the chat as we go. And if and when we've got time towards the end, I'll open it up for a more uh, direct uh, Q&A. The first question I'm going to direct to Asandi, uh, just to get a catch up on where things are with programs and services uh, and how folks are coping for the services that are actually trying to operate at the moment. So thank you. Um, I would 
It is interesting. I want to speak first from our lens and our particular program, which is unique in that we actually had paused programming last year to prepare for the launch and implementation of our five-year strategic plan that we finalized at the end of last year. So we were not in the midst of our typical programming of a fellowship cohort. However, we were continuing to deliver alumni engagement programming. So we were really unique in that we were not um, directly impacted so heavily as a number of other programs in the city. Um, what I know from my colleagues in Detroit and from conversations that and groups that I've been engaged with over the past couple of months is that um, many nonprofits, depending upon who they were serving and whether or not it was uh, around perhaps urgent need like food, um, something like that, have sort of also paused for a moment to reflect on what, what is next for them. So that means whether it's program, program delivery, uh, what their um, clients need at the moment, also the sustainability of their organization has been, I think, a big question for a number of these organizations that are asking whether or not they will even be able to survive the pandemic um, even beyond another probably 30 days or so. So it looks very different for different organizations. Um, and we, while we were not in the midst of a cohort, we also had to pause our pause to say, well, the, the direction we were headed in, does that still make sense? Is it still relevant? Is it what the city needs at the moment? Or do we also need to shift or adapt the direction we were headed to be more sensitive and mindful um, to what the city needs. So it really looks different across this even diverse nonprofit sector here, but I would say a number of organizations mostly are in reactive mode and reacting to um, adapting their programs or ceasing their programs to quickly create new ones to be responsive. Thank you. So it's interesting you were saying that the uh, you had to pause your pause. So you took it a step out for a strategic uh, repositioning, uh, but but again, sort of taken by surprise and having to adjust. Emily, uh, how should uh, executive directors and boards try and think through what Asani's bringing up about the, the unpredictability of services and survival even between now and, say, the end of 2020? Yeah, I was just thinking about that as she was talking. Um, you know, I, I think what I keep seeing from the nonprofits that I work with is they, you know, can we have this program or event in August? Can we do it in, in October? Like, what about next year? And and really trying to think through what their different options are. And the biggest thing I just see is, is no one knows. I mean, you know, it, even if you read the news one week, the next week, something's different and you know, three months from now, it's gonna be very different. And so I think people really have to be comfortable working in a fluid kind of liquid environment where we don't know the answer and it's really hard to plan ahead. And one way that I advise doing that, I, I, I think as I mentioned in the last session, I've been working on future planning scenario, uh, future planning workshops. And I hate the term um, uh, scenario planning because I think it gets a little, um, overused sometimes, but but to be fair, there are scenarios that people are envisioning coming up. And so, you know, it could be that, you know, things 
kind of dip down and bounce back. Um, I feel like that's looking less likely, but but that is one scenario. Um, you could say things bounce back in the, the fall, maybe November. Um, there's a scenario where people, where, um, you know, there's a reoccurrence of, of spread of, of, of COVID-19. And so there's this up and down recovery. And then there's sort of the, the, the big downside is like if we dip into a deeper recession. And I think one way that you can get through some of this fuzzy unknown is to picture those three scenarios and how some of your programs and services would look like um, in each of these scenarios. And that way you have these these paths that you can start to envision and see how different are um, your resources used in each of those. And if they're similar, you can kind of make the same decisions you would and, and keep those paths open. Um, and if not, you might have to start to figure out how do you balance two of those, two or three of those options and keep moving forward. Um, but I, I do think getting, if, if you can't visualize the future, just pick, you know, start to, um, pick a few scenarios and, and visualize that and I'll start to help answer questions because the unknown is just really um, hard to manage. Yeah, I, I mean, we're so far beyond this binary between essential and non-essential. And, and, it, and, and in either case, when we're looking ahead, whether it's just 60 days or 90 days and, and talking about the practicalities of return to work or safe working, we still, in some cases, aren't sure what the footprint of of the services, how how staff are interacting with the people and the communities that we're serving. Is it is it virtual? Does the digital divide allow us to even do that? And 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 I guess my, my next question or development of this this theme, Lisa, is how how can boards and 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 leaders think about what they're measuring or what the data is telling them in order to make some of these decisions or think about what their options are or to Emily's point, scenario plan. I was thinking um, about that when you raised that, Emily, you know, so my background is in humanitarian work and the, the fluid situations that we find ourselves in, this is, it's very common to, when you're doing your planning to have these different scenarios and sometimes people even will categorize them as most likely, least likely, you know, um, categorize them like that. And I think we're living now in a world where there are so many models out there that are, you know, giving us, trying to give us insight into what is likely to happen, or if we do nothing, this is what is going to happen. If we do something, you know, you can start to see um, these predictive models. So that's one way that people can use data to help them anticipate what could be down the road. But I think also I was thinking along the lines as well, when you do these scenario de developments or you, some people call them contingency planning, there's also if people use log frames or if you're developing any log frames, there's always a place in there to put assumptions. And that if you have these assumptions, if this, in order for this to happen, this needs to hold true for this next thing, for your success to happen. So whatever, you know, when you have those scenarios, make sure that you're putting in those assumptions and, and be realistic in it, you know, because these could be tremendous blockers in, um, down the road. And, you know, none of us knows what this, 
what the road is going to look like even in three to, to, you know, three to six months, but try to trying to anticipate that and, and build that in as you're trying to develop what your your responses are going to look like so i don't know if that's useful but yeah so you, <laughs> basically you're saying use the information that you you you've got to to do the best you can with scenario planning yeah um, yeah. yeah and you can use the, you you can use data but also people use experts you know having expert judgment in people know you know like if this happens, how would our community respond or what would that look like in our community? And having that's um, valuable, that's those, that's data, having a, a table of experts around the table or, you know, come in and talk about that because numeric data is going to get you so far, but you need people that know how your communities are going to respond if it, if a scenario, if this happens, what will it look like? So, yeah. And that, but but again, to the to the point about the uncertainty is, you know, what are folks expert about if uh, we're facing a lot of new situations, uh, and so on. And I think where where we find with programs and services, the, the often the experts are not typically labeled as such. Uh, they might not have necessarily the professional credibility, but they're experts in their own experience. So, Sandy, when you were looking both originally at the end of last year in that pause, but also in the pause of the pause and how you're pivoting forward. How have you been relying on, uh, on, on expertise that, again, may not be sort of the typical scientific or professional expertise in that uh, conventional sense, but the expertise of the people that you serve and work with? Absolutely. So thank you for asking that question because I was hoping to jump in and um, remind us about the, the value of the expertise from folks who are often overlooked, but even just asking the folks who are the recipient of the services that we are delivering about what they need and what their reactions or thoughts are to what we are considering or proposing. And so leading up to our strategic plan, we conducted an assessment um, and invited a cross-section of stakeholders. So that included funders, it included our current cohort of fellows at the time. We also invited our alumni fellows that were about 65 um, to participate, as well as our advisory council uh, body and just other folks in the community that included residents, as well as uh, business owners, because the focus of our program is civic community and economic development. So we wanted to get um, diverse feedback and have a diverse voices at the at the various tables that we were creating. And so we utilized that to inform the plan. And what we began to do um, with the pause of the pause was to ask our alumni, this network that is now about 80 folks, what do you all need right now? We know the direction that we were headed in, but we now are in the midst of a pandemic and need to wanna be, um, responsive to them and what their needs are, because for us that network is very important uh, that we continue to invest in them and that we sustain that network. So we have begun to ask those questions um, individually, one-on-one, -on -one, but also through our alumni council, <clears throat> excuse me, through our alumni council that we've convened a couple of times to begin to have those conversations. We will also uh, send out a survey that asks more detailed questions about what folks need for their own well-being and self-care, but also for their careers. 
So we ask, we just simply ask and we are very intentional about asking, not for the sake of just saying we checked a box, but asking and then incorporating the feedback that we get in the program design and implementation. That, that's great. I, I, I love to hear that and uh, getting a lot of nods around the uh, around the the, um, the panel and, and the respondents. And, and, and it opens up a question, I think. You use the term responsiveness. And and I think it's a it's an underappreciated uh, dynamic when it comes to pr- designing and delivering programs and services, and what it what it opens up I think now in this period of uncertainty is what we really understand success or failure of a program to be. So Lisa's already mentioned not just quantitative but also the qualitative and expert. Uh, data that we might rely upon, and we've we've expanded experts to include obviously the the communities we serve and the people that we're working with. Uh, but I want to open up to the panel and also get some feedback from folks listening in about the way we're shifting notions of success and failure for for our programs, because that's when we're thinking about which programs or indeed which organizations are going to survive. <laughs> one of the things we want to do is preserve those that appear to be working well and perhaps be le- less um, uh, less reluctant to, uh, to, to lose those that don't appear to be working. But we want to understand what that actually means. Uh, I don't know. Uh, Emily, do you want to jump in there? I'll, I'll, I'll pick on you to start with. But mm-hmm. please, Lisa and Asandi, yeah. um, prepare to... <laughs> prepare your own comments. And, and I'm opening that up also to others if they have some personal experience uh, in, in where they're working too. Go ahead, Emily. Yeah, and, and feel free um, for anyone to chime in while I'm talking. But I think it's a really tricky question right now because um, it's hard, you know, I think survival is the first um, method of success in a, in a program and service right now. Um, but it's also because things have changed, it's going to be really hard to measure success um, because things are changing. So even if you're successful one week or not one week, it could be different um, later on. But what I um, I would really like to see in terms of successful organizations is, is doing some, ex- I hate the, this word, is not, I, I used to be in the for-profit world, so I apologize, experimentation is not, um, popular in the nonprofit world, but but right now everyone needs to be very nimble. And so I say that in the sense of if we don't know what works, trying a few new things very quickly um, and obviously not not doing that in a way that endangers anyone or, or affects their, their livelihood. But um, I think finding ways that the organizations can adapt quickly. And so I think that would be what I would I would personally look for in successful programming services is this, um, you know, trying three things in a, in a week or two weeks or, you know, trying some new, new things um, once a week that, you know, you can see what's successful. You can gather, you know, I love what Asandi was talking about with the alumni. You can gather that feedback, see how things are adapting quickly. And so rather than doing these six month long surveys, like get that feedback quickly, make those adjustments quickly and just do it in a small batch that you can then grow and grow and grow. That's great. I just want to jump in there and and press you on a bit of detail there, which is (laughs) 
uh, you know, and I, I, I appreciate um, some of the reticence around the word nimble and <laughs> so the, the jargon that we often use. But, but when we're talking about program adjustments, can you give a couple of examples of the things that you're thinking of? And, and I know we're shifting a bit around uh, digital and face-to-face and some other elements of it, but can you share some thoughts about examples? And I'll, again, I'll, I'll invite others to help you out here, but I'm just trying to get some, some um, real-world illustrations of what sort of adjustments people, you know, what, what's, a, what's available to them. Yeah, well, I, and, and I feel like things are still new, and I think my ideas are also kind of new. So I can't say I've, I've, the example that comes to mind is less programming services, but I was, I was talking to someone last week about um, their audience engagement and online, and they were, they were trying to put out um, different uh, Facebook donation um, programs out there and weren't getting much response. And so I was telling her, well, you know, try each week, try a different message, a different approach to your ask um, and see what works, see how many people are liking it, see how many people are actually engaging. Um, and then call, you know, reach out to some of those people um, and talk to them about why, just a, you know, five, 10 minute conversation and talk to them about why they were, whether it was, you know, actually donating or just showing a little interest and getting that feedback. And that allows them to then figure out what they do the next week. Um, you know, they're just little, they're little bits and pieces that shouldn't totally drive into your direction, but they start to give a piece of the puzzle to how people are thinking um, and what they need to hear and see right now in this new environment in order to make, you know, whatever goal you have successful. Right. Okay. Asani, did you want to reply to that? As I was listening to Emily, I was shaking my head in agreement about, um, I forgot the language you used, but what I wrote down was risk and risk-taking. And um, I think that one of the opportunities that COVID affords us is the opportunity, hopefully the space to take risk and be creative because exactly what you're saying, the nimbleness and the need to be adaptive, um, sometimes from day to day or week to week, let alone thinking about June. Two things that I thought about were, I think there's a desire in the nonprofit culture to to take more risk. However, the other side of that is our funders' willingness to support that. And so I want us to, I want to uplift that because I think that that's important for us to remember that many nonprofits are are typically operating with um, uh, underfunding grant guidelines that sort of drive what they can and cannot do. And while I have seen this emergence of funders being more, also being more nimble and flexible and um, granting some allowances around the usage of funds, all of them are not. Um, And so the willingness and the space to be flexible and take risks needs to be, we all, to some extent, need to be granted some permission to do that from those who are holding the purse strings. But, so I wanted to say that because I think that that's important. And I also thought about an idea, Emily, which I have not done, but I was, as I was listening to you, I was thinking about fundraising and um, how folks that had events perhaps planned during this time that obviously did not take place, like 
one of the organizations that I serve on the board of celebrated their anniversary a couple of weeks ago. And their intent was to have a very public facing, um, casual event. It's a youth serving organization. And because that was not able to happen, what they did was sort of took this idea of it was the 16th birthday, Sweet 16, all of the, the live DJ that's happening on Facebook and Instagram and merged that to have really an anniversary Sweet 16 birthday party that was spaced really for the community, the young people they served, also um, funders were invited, board, but their staff also to just sort of pause from the moment of COVID and sort of celebrate all that they've accomplished over the past 16 years. So I thought that was, while not necessarily innovative, it was certainly something that we as an organization were not planning to do. The other thing I thought about is, in terms of taking a risk, is the opportunity for leaders to be vulnerable. And one way that that can look is, instead of sending out your typical ask or solicitation, we need your help during this time of crisis, like leveraging leadership's voice and really talking about what you as an organization and a leader are facing, um, not just as for the people you serve, but also your staff and you as an individual leader. And I think that that vulnerability and that authenticity, perhaps in a blog post, um, that doesn't necessarily come with an ask, but is just really transparent about what is happening in your organization is definitely a risk, but it's also something different that you rarely see leaders doing. I wanted to offer those two. Yeah, those are those are those are great, and it reminds me of uh, episode three, uh, which is marketing and fundraising, and which is the the topic that comes up next week. Which where there were a number of examples of nimbleness and and flexibility uh, for the exact reason you mentioned, Asani, that the the live events were simply canceled, and yet people could not really do without having something. And, uh, and also the message about being vulnerable and human as leaders and being, having that authenticity and, and engagement. And I think, I think just acknowledging where we are and hoping or extending the uh, message to funders and other stakeholders about risk sharing uh, is important so that we can try uh, new and different things. Did you want to come in there, Lisa, too, with a, with a couple of examples? I just wanted to pick up on um, something that both Emily and Asande um, had mentioned, and it has to do with this kind of this agility that we're we're talking about and the ability to try different approaches. And so, using that our problem, so talking to the people, talking to communities and our clients about what it is that they're in need of now and how can we have different approaches that may we may not have entertained you know in the world pre-COVID-19 but I wanted to pick up on this um, idea of feedback as uh, and these feedback loops these micro feedback loops that can help make mid-course corrections when we're attempting to do something that might be creative or different than what we've done before. And it allows you to do have this velocity and even small things, just asking people, that's all you gotta do is, we forget about that, like just ask people, how was this? Was it in the, in, at the quality and the time that you expected? And being able to, to use that 
um, quickly to adapt can be an attractive component of a program to a donor or to um, some somebody that is giving money to our programs that we're, we're listening, um, we're taking a different approach, but we're also listening to what people are telling us and we're perfecting as we go along. So not expecting that these creative solutions are going to be perfect in that go and that you're evolving and changing. So the next iteration, you know, that it gets better. So just wanted to bring up this notion about feedback loops and that they, it doesn't have to wait to happen till the end of your project, build it in there while it's happening. And then, you know, to the, so, so we don't need, right, so we don't need uh, huge, complicated, expensive systems in order no. to have data and be responsive. It's that human connection, which typically our sector should do really well in connecting to uh, our, our, our broader set of people that work with us in terms of partners and funders, but clearly then finding that expertise in the people that we're working with, the people that we're serving, those families, those communities, and, and asking the basic questions about types of service and, and what flexibilities we have and what works and and, and what doesn't work. Is that, yeah. is that accord with what I'm hearing? Yeah, and, and tracking that, um, Kev, because when you track that, that's your data there, right? Like track it, just be um, systematic in the way that you're doing it. And, and you have proof right there. You have, um, you know, you have your, your trail, your data trail. <laughs> right, okay, I've got, a, I've got a question from the uh, chat from Stephanie uh, asking if she can just jump in. Do you have a question you wanna pose right now? I do. It kind of relates to what's happening, what you're, what we're all talking about now. Um, so I work in the museum space. I'm a consultant to the, into the museum space. And um, as many of you, I have a user, strong user-centered um, approach. And, um, uh, you know, as you can imagine, there's a, like a ton of stress in that space right now. Um, you may have heard that lots of, um, you know, top tier and second tier museums across the nation have had mass layoffs, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so there is a ton of stress um, in that situation. And I think that that stress can make it really hard for the leadership to be, um, you know, open to risk taking or even, you know, approach the idea of being very experimental or risk taking mm -hmm. to, you know, who, whatever, their funder, their boards or whatever. So I wanted to ask if you all had some, you know, recommendations around how they might approach, um, you know, sort of convincing themselves, I guess, as well as convincing others that now is a good time to, you know, take those risks because a lot of those institutions, they are literally, you know, faced with their survival or not. Right. Uh, Asandi, do you want to jump in on that? Oh, and thank you, Stephanie. That's a great question. Yes. Thank you, Stephanie. I was thinking about um, the space of peers. So having other, I know there are national organizations for museum leadership. I was also thinking more locally about if there are, if there's other local peers. So in Detroit, we're fortunate we have a cultural center that has like amazing museums and cultural institutions and they talk to each other. So I don't know where you are, but if that space, if that space exists, that might be helpful um, in a safe space where your your client 
to feel like they can share. If there are examples, whether locally or nationally, of, or other, of other organizations taking those risks, um, that might also be helpful. And I wonder if, going back to a comment I said earlier about if there's, if there's permission from a funder, like it's okay, because it sounds like the, re the reality is either they take this risk or they may not exist. So it's, it's almost really not a choice. Um, <laughs> like they have to do something and really um, practice courageous, courageous leadership and do something. Sort of moving through this period of getting unstuck. But if there are examples of courageous leadership, I think, and they can see it role modeled either in similar organizations or among their peers or just in other nonprofits across the country that might help to move them. Um, I also wonder about leveraging the voice of um, museum members um, and staff because staff, sometimes leadership is not necessarily as connected. And so if they are able, if they feel, if they are empowered and feel like they can leverage their voice to move and usher leadership into taking some risk that might also be helpful or, or at least just some ideas to consider yeah thank you yeah <laughs> yeah um i really so i'm in chicago um and the you know the big museums and museum campus and the art institute mostly the museum campus they're they're a bit in touch there um i'm not sure how much the art institute is part of that you know, kind of um, higher level leader circle. Um, but there are, are of course, like um, local and national groups that they're both a part of and um, those leaders do communicate. So I think that's a great, great idea. Um, and then I also think that, you know, the medium sized museums are probably gonna be the ones that are more nimble to be able to take risks. So maybe looking towards like looking around at what they're doing may be a good place to point to, like you mentioned. Um, I wonder, yeah. sorry, I was gonna say, Emily, I, I wonder if the, just building on what uh, Asani was saying is that, and, and, and your response to the earlier question about uh, trying to do uh, short term batch changes, if you will, and, 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 and small, things where you're explicit about the risk you're, you're taking and the objective. Yeah. Can you talk a bit more about that or how that approach might apply to, um, to museums and, and other of Stephanie's clients? Yeah. And I've, I've worked with some museums too, and it's just, it really breaks my heart right now what they're, they're having to go through um, knowing what they were already going through before. Um, and I think one of the tough things right now is that museums really, you know, they rely on people coming in and that's just not going to be possible for a long while. And so there's some, you know, I think the things museums can do now is engage people in other ways. Uh, I'm in Chicago as well. So, you know, my, my daughter's been watching the, the stay home hit play um, you know, where uh, our mayor goes into different museums and, and, you know, it's, it's being, um, promoted through CPS. And so this is a way that museums are staying engaged with kids and families throughout, um, throughout this time. And I think that's where museums really need to experiment and try, um, because I have seen some very successful um, ways, but you, you know, it's gotta be 
new all the time. You can't really copy, um, you know, copy what another museum is doing unless it's in a new, maybe in a new city. Um, but it is, you know, and I think this is a, it's a new area for museums to pivot and rely on their social media so much more than their, their personal interaction. Um, but I think that's just where you know, they got to get creative and experiment. Um, yeah, and, I agree. And I think that um, the, the museums, the larger museums that depend so much on their building um, that have no outdoor space are the ones that will be the most challenged. Yeah, especially ones that, you know, have a lot of existing expenses. Um, this is tricky. And, and when you first asked the question, it made me think of, um, this is more just a, a life strategy than just for museums. But um, one of the things I was talking about someone recently is like, the way we're going to get through all of this is resilience. Um, and to be thinking every day, you know, I would put this to leaders, is think every day about how you can get through this with resilience. And, and I say that an example just in my personal life, thinking about when I read the news and what news, you know, makes my anxiety go up and what news just helps me feel like, okay, I personally can get through this. And I think organizations need to be thinking the same way too. Like, can leaders think about, yeah, you can read all the news about what's happening to museums across the the country across the world, but if that's not going to add to your resilience, you might just need to ignore that right now and just think about, you know, what information is going to get you excited and, you know, pumped up to, to try new things, to find the solution that works for you, knowing that there's no, you know, magic wand, but you can, it, I think it helps bring out that creativity and confidence that there are ideas out there that can work for you but you just got to know that your expenses are high. You're gonna have a tough time, but you need to think about when you can open those doors. How do you get people to come along with you on that ride while we're all at home? Um, how do you let people know you're relevant? How do you people, let people know what you're struggling with? But picture that end and, and how you get there versus just focusing on the negatives of today. Yeah, I think that's a, that's good advice to um, leaders. I, had, I, I, had one, organizationally, I think it works in all ways. <laughs> yeah. Um, I had one more question, if y'all don't mind if I ask. No, no, not at all. <laughs> I'm, 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 I know what I'm going to ask Lisa, so I want you to go. But, but go ahead, Stephanie. Okay. All right. <laughs> so the other thing that's happening is, you know, uh, so medium to small size organizations who may not have the endowment to fall back on that some of the larger or just older organizations have, especially think like East Coast, large endowment kind of things. Um, you know, there's already conversation in the museum space about merging, um, merging resources, um, you know, how to and when to actually shut it all down. And so I'm wondering, especially on the merging you know, the mm -hmm. kind of merging idea. Are y'all seeing any of those conversations and, and how are they going for, you know, your sectors? Well, that, that was one of the questions we were hoping to cover today about uh, merging or indeed even closing uh, organizations. And, and, and they, it's, it's really uh, an extension of your previous question. And the way I was going to pose it to Lisa, who, from a humanitarian perspective, I'm sure has seen 
uh, similar but different <laughs> examples where uh, an organization or program is really facing an existential threat, just like many of those that we're talking about now, and yet find themselves paralyzed and unable to pivot or unable to think of uh, maneuvers and options. And merger now is, is, is a very real prospect and possibly the only survival prospect for some. Lisa, can you uh, just jump in there so I can stop talking and <laughs> listen to you instead? Um, Kim, I don't know how relevant some of my <laughs> examples that I, uh, that I have are. I mean, so uh, my, my experience is in humanitarian contexts, and it is when you see... Um, that you no longer are needed. There is a handoff, but it's kind of, and um, I don't really have good examples myself of like, of merging, um, of merging programs on a smaller level. It's mainly at, you know, at a larger, at a larger level. And it's, it usually has to do with the appetite or for funders or donors to be able to parse that out a little bit, I think. And so is, is it are they is it efficiency driven the, rather than survival driven? Is, is that what you're saying? Yeah, it is. And for them to get their head around how, like the mechanics of that and how how it would work, you know, with um, yeah, like with what who's responsible for what and who achieves what, and so you know it usually takes a lot longer than what is anticipated just because of that my it's been from my experience purely from a donor perspective but it could be different here asandi if you when you did your pause <laughs> to 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 um reset your strategy was was merger a consideration for you it was it was not immediately however in the long term strategic plan we did think about um there was a question that we wanted to be able to answer later in the strategic plan about where the fellowship program lived. Does it, did it make sense where it continue to live within a university? Um, because our program is not for students. And so, and our offices were not on campus even. So it felt in some ways sort of disconnected from the university. So that was the question. And it was more about uh, thinking long-term about who a partner might, a good fit partner might be for the fellowship program, where it might make sense. But I, I think I want to raise something, say something that's a little difficult to say about nonprofits and merging and closure is that we have, and this is very much my own personal opinion, I think that there are way too many nonprofits that exist. And I think a number of them do not need to continue to exist. With that, um, I think they're an opportunity for merger or collaboration that streamlines and allows for efficiencies that have not been there before. Again, could be another opportunity that the pandemic affords our sector is to think really about where we're duplicating services, how we may be able to be more efficient and better leverage the funding that is available that historically organizations probably have competed for. So I think there's an opportunity to really have that conversation now and hopefully be approach it with some humility and leave your, your egos 
outside so that you can really have a conversation that's driven by perhaps some shared mission and also what is in the best interest for the population that you want to serve. So I, I think that it, it is going to happen here in Detroit. I, I know it's going to happen. I'm not hearing a lot about it, but I know that there are some conversations because the reality is that all of these organizations simply will not survive in terms of the small to medium organizations that are here. They just, they're not, as, as much as it saddens me, they are not going to already, they're not going to be able to survive. Philanthropy here has already begun to, well, they began more than a month ago to redirect some of their funding, pause funding that was projected and redirect funding for COVID-19 response. And so some organizations that were anticipating funding may not receive it. Well, we touched on uh, last time uh, this panel met, which was episode two, we we were wrestling a bit with that tension between uh, programs and services surviving or consolidating and organizations cons- surviving or consolidating and 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 how you decide between between those what we're raising i think today uh, and it was your word asani was the responsiveness and uh, and i think that resonates with with everyone on the panel we've been focusing on a, on a user response and 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 user input and we've added to that this notion of experimentation and looking at uh, initially at least qualitative uh, data. Uh, I just wanted to bring in Ebony Bond, who's who's listening in, uh, to to speak about her experience with experimentation and responsiveness. Ebony, do you want to introduce yourself and then share what you've got? Um, hi, um, I work at the University of Akron Research Foundation, and we assist early stage entrepreneurs. Um, so a lot of what we do is trying to help them uh, clarify how they're going to actually deliver their solution um, and acquire customers. Um, I think maybe for our our space, it may be a little different from how we engage our clients um, from the rest of you. Um, a lot of what we do is very program-based, so it's easy for us to transition a lot of those programs to being online. Um, however, Um, My job, like I would put my job in three main buckets, which were um, outreach um, to different classrooms or professors at universities or different organizations, um, events, and then promotion. So with COVID, I was like, I was like driving to work one day when like the week when all the shutdowns were happening, I was just like, wait, what is my job going to look like? Um, So instead of maybe like experimenting or trying different things or moving some of the events that I was doing online, I took a step back and actually looked at the programs that we had. And and I'm trying to think about ways that I can add even more value to those programs going forward. And then also I'm trying to figure out where maybe there's some gaps in programs um, that exist in the region that I can work on developing now for the future. So instead of just thinking, so now, 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 I've been thinking, you know, what are ways that I can fit focus on creating more value in the in the future. So one of them is um, I'm developing a go-to-market strategy. Um, so a lot of people have early validation or they have some idea about the value that they want to create and for who, but they don't really, you know, develop a plan and a strategy for execution. So I seen somebody mention Megan from Arts Cleveland. I emailed her yesterday to try to get a phone call to figure out, you know, what are some of the um, ways that she's seen people or artists um, go to uh, market because China, like what we do is very tech, um, high tech or sometimes no tech, 
but we don't actually aren't very inclusive of artists. So I'm now trying to think about ways, is there a different customer segment that, you know, we can address or is there different value that we can add? Um, somebody mentioned, um, I think Asandi, how you were having a program at a university, but it wasn't actually for university people. So even trying to think about what are some different channels that you could use to actually even deliver your solution. So, yeah, I think trying to figure out different uh, stakeholders that you can get and engage, different channels, different customers. Um, are there any different value propositions? Are there new problems that you're um, client has or one of the stakeholders have that you can then then address um so that's my that's my bit so probably like less experimentation but thinking about how can i even enrich enrich programs going forward or create but, but still what you're emphasizing is that notion of responsiveness and trying to be flexible rather than restricted to maybe the way you described your program in a grant application three years ago, which may or may not be uh, as relevant. Emily, did you want to jump in there? Yeah, I, um, that question you asked me a while back about examples, um, as everyone was talking, <laughs> I had some pop in my head and and what Ebony was talking about as well is I, um, I'm working with an organization uh, that focuses on workforce development and manufacturing, and we've uh, we were planning on doing two live events where we bring everybody together later this fall, um, which is obviously not happening. And so um, that's kind of, when you talk about the value, we were re just doing, we just did a little brainstorm and we're really thinking about how can we deliver the value of the program, but maybe in, maybe it's pieced together in different ways and certain values are less and some are more. Um, and so some of the things we've, you know, we've talked about just doing the event virtually, that's kind of the, the obvious one, but we've also talked about repackaging it into a um, kind of a DIY kit um, and, and doing it more in a combination where there's, um, you get a kit, you can run the program yourself, but there's check-ins with us virtually so that we can ma maintain the integrity of the program too. It's not just like people you know, start it and then fall off. Um, we can help them work through some of the challenges. And so, and the cool thing, the value um, about that is before we, we were only actually doing this um, through an NEA grant and um, we we're only able to do two um, of these sessions. But now if we think about a, a DIY kit um, that we can just help moderate, we can reach more cities, more cities can afford the program. Um, you know, in the, in like the funding, I should say that the funding that we need to raise for each program is less. Um, and we're able to reach out to the NEA, um, and, and talk to them about changing around our event structure for that. Um, and they were, they were okay with that. And so there's still some matching funding that needs to happen, but it makes it a little easier on the organization's end to, um, you know, to, to make it happen, but also um, I think they really have a great opportunity to, to increase their impact by reaching more cities. The hard part is going to be maintaining that integrity um, because myself and they won't be as integrated into it, but um, that's part of our experimentation. You know, we can do more of them and learn more quickly um, to improve them each step of the way. Right. And that, so that, again, uh, doing a bit of experiment, uh, small scale controlled experimentation, but I think you hit the nail on the head there, Emily, where the, the, the objective is the impact and the difference it's going to make. And so a, a, a 
perhaps a slightly different impact, but at a greater scale, is is a worthwhile trade-off that you again you've learned through that experimentation. Is that is that a fair assessment? Yeah, yeah, and that's I think where you have to come up with the ideas and then start to pick them apart and see you know what impact are they making. Maybe it's not the same thing you hoped for, but it could be even better. So Stephanie, I'll go I'll I'll go back to you then. Is that is that helping you think through some ways in in which the the sort of paralysis, for lack of a better term, might shift if we think of small-scale experiments that might help in that museum space? I mean, yeah. So, you know, yes, small-scale experiments are definitely, um, I think, something that, that that, that's already being thought of. It's a very user-centered perspective. Um, I think, um, yeah, it's something that we can do more of, though, in the museum space. and I think that I, I'm I'm very curious though about like um, this idea of merging resources and how that might look like if we have like multiple large scale organizations who you know have quite distinct um, missions or collections or what have you um, you know how may how might they sort of come together because this world is going, it seems like it's going to last for quite a long time. Um, We don't know when museums will be able to open up again. There are projections, but we don't know. And then once they do, how many people will actually come um, to an indoor space, especially in the South that's, you know, uh, um, uh, air conditioned very much, you know, like Mm -hmm. all these things. So um, I think that yeah, I was going to mention Stephanie. Um, I put a link in the chat. The very last thing I attended before um, you know I, I stayed home was uh, Forefront had a their mission sustainability initiative, uh, yeah. which is actually I don't know if you're familiar with it, but they do help fund nonprofits exploring mergers and partnerships um, because I think that's that's part of the clue to those things is is visualizing what that looks like and talking through what those mergers look like so that you can, same way you do an experiment, you know, okay, if we partner with A, B, or C, what does that look like? What are the benefits? Um, You know, where are the wins? That's cool. I did also like the idea of the kits and like having a um, digital plus like tangible experience both because then that that offers like more ability to potentially have revenue. Yeah, I, th- I think we're we're hitting on this idea of uh, of, of user responsiveness, and I, and I thought you drew an interesting distinction, Stephanie, with the the um, saying on the one hand, some of the experiments can be user centeredness, but when we look at merger, we immediately think to the survival of the organization and the consistency with mission, and we think of those sort of big, bigger picture strategic questions, but very much with an institutional or organizational lens, almost as though we are distancing ourselves from the people that we serve. And yet it may be that therein lies the key to how we maintain that mission consistency or find common ground with potential merger partners. Yeah. Uh, Asana, I see you shaking your head there. Do you want, do you want to commit on that? No. Disagree. <laughs> no, just a good. Just, okay. Um, so 
what other questions might we consider them aside from uh, the, the, the sort of obvious one about mission consistency when it comes to uh, mergers? Emily, do you, do you have any experience with, with organizations wrestling with, with that question, either for programs or for the organizations as a whole? Um, I, I actually have not dealt with mergers. Like I said, I, I was attended um, this really great talk uh, by Forefront in March. Um, and, you know, it was really great to kind of think about the different types of, of mergers. You know, there's merging your space and sharing the space and, and sharing those costs, but maintaining your organization. Um, and Forefront is actually doing that right now. They've been moving into a new space where they're going to have some nonprofits they will all share a space. That means they share, you know, printer costs and IT guy and, you know, different things that can just help out um, where you're, you know, paying one person, two different people to do the same thing. You can, you can pay one person. Um, but then there's also, I think, thinking about um, sharing programs. You know, if you, if you are, serving, doing similar services, but offering them to people on the west side and people on the south side can, you know, can like either you hand that off or um, sort of take part A and someone takes part B. There's just a lot of different ways to, to break it up that it doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, like uh, Kraft and Heinz coming together, you know, and, and right. changing. It doesn't have it. to be the a, right a, a change of your legal entity. Uh, mm-hmm. It could be ways of sharing services. Yeah, I, I do makes it more complicated, but that's why I think visualizing them and seeing what they look like and working through some of those details can help answer the question: of What's the right one? But I guess what I'm wondering is, and and correct me if I'm wrong, Stephanie. I think what we were were trying to get from the more reactive, defensive, if you will, cost reduction focus of a merger to one built on serving a particular community in the most uh, efficient and effective way, which uh, allows us to look forward and positively as at, at that merger as a way of consolidating for the purposes of, of doing better service. I think, Asani, that's where you were getting to with the idea of there are too many little nonprofits, and, and Cleveland's very similar in that regard to, to Detroit, where you think a lot of cost is, is, is uh, lost or sunk into administration rather than delivery. Uh, can, you, can you comment on any examples or... Or, or a momentum, perhaps, of looking at mergers in a in a positive way in that regard. So I I will say quickly, um, I haven't seen it specifically in the space that I work in. But what is what is promising is we began before COVID in February to convene similar organizations and programs. So leadership and talent development, either fellowships or programs that are in Detroit. And we have began to have conversations about to explore if there were some synergies or opportunities for collaboration, not necessarily merger, but let's just start start to have these conversations and see where they go. And possibly we would have, and we still continue to meet virtually, but it's possible that those conversations may lead to help us identify a new home for our fellowship program 
it's possible that it might identify an opportunity to, to blend programs that um, while are similar, one serves early career and one serves um, mid-career professionals. So I think that there's beauty in that. I know that um, I have also prior to COVID begin to hear people uh, gently nudge people to reconsider when they would say, I want to start a nonprofit. Yeah. People would like, well, why? And have you, and my question to even some folks that I've had conversations, why have you done your due diligence? Who else is doing this work? Who else is serving this population? Um, are you duplicating services? How will you be different? And if they're not able to answer that question, those questions, and I say, well, you might want to pause and think about partnering. Um, and some of that was happening here because of philanthropy, but I don't have examples. I don't have, actually, I know it happened recently last year with, um, I think two foster care, uh, organizations that were not just Detroit based, but, um, Southeast Michigan. And so my understanding from what I hear is that that merger of actually two big organizations has gone well and they retained both of the senior leadership of those organizations. They might be co-president or president mm -hmm. CEO or something like that. So I don't hear it often here because of, I think, personality and egos. But I, I think we will have to be open to it in a way that we never have before. Yeah, I, I, think, that's, I think that's right. Mergers never uh, uh, leapt into... Um, with an expectation that's that's always going to go smoothly, uh, but there will be a lot more uh, going forward. Okay, we have uh, run out of time. I'd like to thank the panel and uh, Stephanie and Ebony for their contributions. We are here every Wednesday at 1. There will be resources uh, on the website, uh, kevkayat.com or nonprofitproblemsolver.com. A lot of the things that have popped up in the chat, we will try and distribute or make available. And uh, we will see you next time on Nonprofit Problem Solver. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for joining us on the Nonprofit Problem Solver podcast. Special thanks to this week's experts Emily Taylor, Asandi Connor, and Lisa Peterson. This episode was produced by Glenn Munoz at Pod Pro Audio. You can join future conversations live by visiting nonprofitproblemsolver.com. Connect with Kev on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. You're also invited to join a private Facebook group, Social Impact Practitioner, where every day we go deep into the practical and tactical work to accelerate your impact. Because good causes deserve better results.